Good morning from me, Peter Lewis. It's Wednesday, the 5th of October. The time's 8.03 in Hong Kong. I hope you enjoyed the Chung Yung Festival break yesterday. It's back to the business and finance headlines here on Money Talk on Radio 3. EU member states are close to agreeing a deal to impose a price cap on Russian oil. Ambassadors met in Brussels on Tuesday evening to finalise the EU's eighth package of sanctions against Moscow. The full implementation of the oil price cap will require consensus among G7 countries on the right level of the ceiling and its effectiveness will hinge heavily on whether major importers of Russian oil that are outside the G7-led coalition agree to abide by the price caps. Economic data from the US shows job vacancies plunged by more than 1 million in August in a sign of a cooling economy. The number of job openings was 10.05 million in August, down sharply from the prior 11.17 million. It was the second biggest one-month drop in vacancies in two decades of data, eclipsed only in April 2020, when employers sharply slowed hiring at the start of the pandemic. And in a surprise reversal, Elon Musk appears to have changed his mind about buying Twitter again and is now willing to proceed with his takeover of the social media platform. In a letter to the firm, Mr Musk agreed to pay the price he offered months ago before trying to terminate the deal. Shares of Twitter surged 22% overnight. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Patrick Bennett at CIBC World Markets, Mark Franklin from Manulife Investment Management and RTHK's international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3 US shares have notched their best two-day gain in over two years as weak economic data helped ease some worries about the pace of additional interest rate increases from the Federal Reserve. On Tuesday, the S&P 500 closed 3.1% higher at 3,791 after rebounding 2.6% on Monday. The Dow added 825 points to 30,316, bringing its two-day gain to almost 1,600 points. The Nasdaq bounced a combined 5.7% over the two days to 11,176. The Pan-European Stock 600 index jumped 3.3%, marking its biggest one-day gain since March. London's FTSE 100 rose 2.6%. Hong Kong stocks start trading again this morning after a holiday yesterday with the Hang Seng ending at its lowest level in 11 years. On Monday, the benchmark index dropped below 17,000 for the first time since October 2011, and by the close it had retreated 0.8% to 17,079 after hitting a low of just over 16,900. For the third quarter, the Hang Seng lost over 21% and for the year to date is down 27%. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil rose 2.6% to $86.52 a barrel ahead of the OPEC Plus meeting tomorrow where expectations of a production cut have risen to 1 to 2 million barrels per day. That's up from around half a million to 1 million barrels per day that was expected at the end of last week. Gold is up 1.5%, trading this morning at $1,725 an ounce. The 10-year Treasury yield has retreated 19 basis points from a 10-year high over the past two trading days. Earlier in the day, it broke below 3.6% before settling at 3.63%. 
And the US dollar fell for the fifth straight day. The US dollar index was down 1.4%. And the index was trading as high as 114.78 last week. And the last five days have seen the biggest drop in the dollar since March 2020. The euro this morning is just below parity with the dollar. The Japanese yen is at 143.84. Sterling is trading at $1.14.5 and 8 Hong Kong dollars and 99 cents. Chinese yuan is at 7.03 and a half versus the dollar in offshore markets. And Bitcoin has rallied 4% to back above $20,000. Strong gains at the open for Asia Pacific stock markets this morning. The ASX 200 in Australia is already up 1.4%. The Nikkei 225 in Japan has risen about 0.4%. The Cosby in South Korea is up one and a quarter percent and futures markets are pointing to a gain of about 540 points for the Hang Seng at the Open this morning. Time's just gone 8.08. Let's welcome our guests over in our Queensway studio. We have Patrick Bennett, macro strategist at CIBC World Markets. Morning, Patrick. Good morning, Peter. And also with us, Mark Franklin, managing director and senior portfolio manager of multi-asset solutions at Manulife Investment Management. Morning to you, Mark. Good morning, Peter. And over in Washington, D.C., we find our international economics correspondent, Barry Wood. Morning, Barry. Good morning, Peter. Now, economic data from the U.S. showed job vacancies plunged by more than 1 million in August. The number of job openings was 10.05, down sharply from the prior number, which was revised lower to 11.17 million, the second biggest one-month drop in vacancies in two decades of data. Other figures from the Job Openings and Labour Turnover Survey, known as JOLTS, released yesterday, also indicated that the employment market could be slowing. The number of workers who voluntarily quit their jobs was little changed in August at 4.2 million after trending down in recent months. And the ratio of job vacancies to unemployed people stands at 1.7%, which is the lowest level since November 2021. And just a reminder that we do have the non-farms payrolls data being released on Friday. Barry, over in the US, let me ask you about this uh, decline in job vacancies. The Fed have been looking for a calling of the, um, the employment market. Uh, before they start maybe easing back on their campaign to tighten monetary policy. Is this data going to help them with that? Well, I think it's just one more data point. It's not going to be decisive. I think the, the jobless figures that come out on Friday will be quite important. 250,000 jobs for September, that's the expected figure. That's down from 310,000 in August. Uh, I think the labor market is very confused here in the States. You've still got a lot of people who don't want to go back to work, and yet you have these job vacancies. So uh, it's hard to read into this market what is really happening. I think the conclusion you can reach is that the United States economy is still perking along at a pretty good pace. And it still seems to be the case, doesn't it, that people believe that it's going to be quite easy for them to get a job because they're still quitting uh, their jobs in quite large numbers. There's no doubt about that. And yet you see some of the technology firms really cutting back. Amazon is doing that and uh, Facebook is doing that. And uh, nonetheless, 
here in the Washington area where you have a very big uh, Amazon presence and you've got a very big Oracle presence. I talk to people who say, yeah, I can quit this job at Oracle tomorrow and go to Amazon the next day. Mm. So I think that, um, again, in the technology sector, there's no doubt there is a slowdown. But uh, the job market is still vibrant. And if you want a job in the United States, you'll find it. Uh, Patrick and Mark, what, what do you make of this? Do you think that uh, there are signs now that uh, the, the labor market is cooling in the U.S.? Look, I think it's a good, you know, it's a good number, but I think there's a, it's a lot further to go uh, for the Fed to be comfortable um, that they're tightening to date, uh, you know, has had, the, has had, the, right, has had the right effect. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, one number is good, but, uh, we, you know, we need a lot more uh, to come yet. Uh, you know, as Barry alluded to, you know, the market is still very buoyant. Uh, you know, wages growth, uh, you know, has been picking up, uh, and the Fed will want to do a lot more work yet uh, before they get comfort. So I think the market, uh, uh, you know, a rally in, the, in equities, uh, you know, is a good thing, but I think the market is perhaps jumping ahead to just a little bit uh, too swiftly uh, to try and pick the end of when this uh, tightening cycle may be. I mean, a lot of people are talking about this Fed pivot, aren't they, as they, as they call it, and, and hoping that they're going to see that soon. But this data probably on, on its own isn't enough to do that. Not on its own, no. Uh, look, I think the market always wants to – they always want to forecast something. Uh, <laughs> they're never comfortable. They want to look around two corners. Uh, they're not comfortable just saying, well, the Fed has to continue hiking. They want to say, well, the Fed's going to hike for another nine months and then it's going to ease for, for 12 months. Well, you know, we don't think that's the case. We think the Fed is going to tighten, uh, tighten into the early part of, uh, of 2023 and very likely stay on hold there uh, you know, through, that, uh, through the year. Mark, what, what are your thoughts? Well, I think that the, the bar for the non-farm payrolls number on Friday is relatively low. And, and even if it comes in in line, 250,000 new jobs into a, a jobs market where the unemployment rate is below 4% means that the market is tightening from an already very tight level. So I think this gives the Fed limited ammunition to contemplate a shift in tone. There's also a political angle here. We've got the midterms coming up in November. If you're a very large corporate in the public eye, you won't want to attract unwanted uh, political pressure and publicity by announcing a swathe of job cuts. Hmm. So what we've seen from the large tech companies so far is predominantly freezes on new hiring. You may well see a pickup in announced job cuts after the midterms when the political uh, atmosphere is less febrile. Barry, the, the Mark, I think that's exactly right. I think that's, uh, that's what's happening in the labor market. And I further agree with Patrick. I think the Fed tightening will continue. Let's not forget we've had three percentage points increase overall in the Fed funds rate. And usually interest rates take a while to have an impact. And uh, we're seeing that impact in housing, but you are not yet seeing it in the, in the general economy. The, the unemployment rate in the U.S., it, it's about 3.7% at the moment. So it's close to a five-decade low where will the Fed um, want to see this? I mean, they've said quite openly, you know, unemployment's going to have to go up. What, what sort of levels are we talking about? I mean, I've heard some Wall Street economists maybe talk about 5%. Is, is that right? Well, I, I, I will defer to Patrick and Mark on this one, but I think certainly 3.7% is much too low. The Fed expects that to go to 4.5%, maybe 5 
Yeah, look, I think something with a forehand or, um, you know, by the end of the year, uh, you know, we'd be heading in the right direction. And that's not, and the right direction is not that unemployment is rising, you know, precipitously. Uh, you know, as you say, a 3.7 or five decade low is you know, incredibly strong. The, the job mm. market has been incredibly strong. But, uh, yeah, look, the Fed has, uh, had laid out their cards. And I think that's the, look, that's the story of when you tighten monetary policy to try and, curb inflation, you do that by slowing activity in the economy. And, and one very important sector of that is, uh, is the job market. So, yes, they'll be wanting to look to see, uh, you know, some, some moderation, some easing from where we are now. Uh, and by easing, I mean a higher unemployment rate uh, before there's any uh, level of comfort. So if we got to, say, 5% of four-handle or maybe five-handle, is that the sort of level normally in the past you, you get recessions when you see that sort of number of jobs being shed? Well, I think if we got to 5% very swiftly, then there's something else going on. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that there would be, there would be some concern about that. Uh, you know, the idea of uh, engineering a soft landing, I think, is, uh, you know, is gone. Uh, I don't think that that's possible. I think that's a, you know, that's a pipe dream for any, for any central banker. So I think that 2023 is, looks, looks difficult uh, in the environment of higher monetary policy uh, that it's started to feed through uh, into activity, uh, activity in the economy and a, and a slightly higher or moderately higher uh, unemployment rate. Is the Fed on the right path? I mean, some people are worried that, you know, this is going to hurt uh, the global economy. And also, um, some people are worried it's going to create, you know, all sorts of um, unforeseen calamities in the financial markets. We have seen some stresses already, haven't we, in the last uh, sort of couple of weeks. Is, is, is the Fed on the right path or the wrong path here? Well, it's effectively trying to reverse a lot of the uh, missteps in policy that it presided over last year. The unprecedented pace of real narrow money growth in the high 20s year over year, and it's now heading back towards zero and negative. So the, the breaking is so fearsome that it's inevitably going to lead to some dislocations in financial markets and ultimately the real economy. Mm. Is it the right or the wrong move? Well, to the extent that it's basically undoing the damage that was already caused, it's perhaps necessary. But at some point, they're going to have to convince markets that they're looking at forward-looking data rather than you know, con contemporaneous data or backward-looking data. Is, is the Fed then pushing the world into recession? Well, I, I, look, I would agree with Mark that you know, we're unwinding not just last year, but we're unwinding, you know, since uh, the, the GFC, we're unwinding, you know, years of, of profligate, uh, you know, monetary policy, easy monetary policy, which has, mm -hmm. you know, caused a lot of asset price inflation and now it's feeding through into, uh, you know, into, into the real, uh, you know, into, into CPI, uh, notwithstanding we have some other impacts as well in the last uh, last 12 months. So. Look, I think that the economy needs to slow in order to curb uh, this inflationary pressure, and that's a message which has been very difficult uh, for the uh, for the market to, to get to grips with. I mean, we've we've had, as you say, this easy monetary policy for a long time, maybe too long. It still seems that even now, um, there's uh, individuals, there's companies. There's even governments that haven't got the message that we're no longer at zero interest rates and you can't just borrow um, at low rates like you used to before. Witness what's happened in the UK in the last couple of weeks. Well, that, well that's, that's right. You, know, you look at uh, where policy rates are around the globe at the moment and by and large they're not actually at uh, you know, restrictive levels if we consider you know, the, the historical, uh, historical numbers. Um, now we're getting towards restrictive levels, but we're not there yet, uh, and rates still need to go higher now. And I think that uh, we believe that the market is getting, yes, a little bit uh, ahead of itself now, looking for this pivot or looking for a uh, you know a sharp slowing in the uh, in the pace of hikes. 
absolutely. I, I, I really agree with that, uh, Patrick. Uh, this is a market that is saying, look at this two-day run in United States equity prices. It's extraordinary. Those are investors saying, hold it, we think we're at a bottom, that this bear market is over. So this is a strong economy. The perception that the economy is doing much better than had been thought. And Peter, your question about is the Fed pushing the global economy into recession? I don't think they are. There is a slowing. And as Patrick just said, we're going to see a rise in unemployment. We're going to see a slowing of economic growth. That is happening. And you're further right, Peter, when you call attention to the stresses in Europe. Look what happened to the pound sterling last week. It's rebounded, but what does that really mean? Look at the Ukraine war and the, and the way that we have new uncertainties because of Ukraine's victories on the battlefield. We have the North Koreans sending up rockets. And I think next week, seven days from right now, we've got the G7, the G20, all the finance ministers here in Washington for the International Monetary Fund meeting. I think that Jay Powell will have a difficult time talking to these folks because they will expect him to defend what he's been doing. But the Fed is pretty much unified. Until they see signs of a real slowdown, there will be no pivot. Patrick and Mark, what do you make of this two-day rally then that we've seen um, in U.S. stocks taking it up over 5%? Um, is it the end of the bear market and now, uh, you know, we're, we're back on the, in good times or is it a bear market rally? I mean, it is a, a fact, isn't it, that you, some, you see some of the biggest rallies in markets do occur in bear markets. So what, what is this? Yeah, I mean, I think that you're right to point out that the, the bear markets are often characterized by fierce reversal rallies, mm -hmm. which can range from two days in duration up to several days in duration and can sometimes be double digits in terms of return from a very low base. We entered this week technically at very oversold levels. Um, we saw options positioning very skewed towards protective positioning. So all the short-term indicators were telling you that a short-term tactical technical bounce was, was likely impossible. But have the facts on the ground changed? I would, I would urge caution there. I think that the market has cottoned on to two or three central banks ex the Fed suggesting a moderation in tone or maybe even some intervention. So the Bank of England getting involved in the long end of the gilts market, the Bank of Japan intervening in the FX markets, the Reserve Bank of Australia only raising rates by 25 basis points instead of 50. And maybe some market participants are inferring that the Fed will ultimately be next. But the inflation data that we're seeing, the labor market data that we're seeing, have yet not yet given the Fed room to, to shift in tone. And so the markets for the Fed rate hike for November are still pricing in on balance another 75 basis point rate hike. Patrick, why do you see this two-day uh, bounce that we've seen? Yeah, look, I think Mark uh, you know, encapsulated very, very well. Uh, that's exactly uh, you know, our view as well. You know, the market still remains under pressure. The... Uh, you know, overall, the prospects of, uh, of slower growth in 2023, the prospects of higher policy rates, uh, you know, higher rates for, you know, for consumers and for, uh, you know, for corporate borrowers, you know, all point to a challenge uh, to, to earnings and all point to a, a challenge to, to equity market valuations. Uh, it does feel the last couple of days, uh, yes, a, a relief. Uh, almost like the too much money chasing too few things, um, <laughs> you know, as have we've seen in uh, you know in inflation over the last uh, over the last couple of years. So, no, I don't think this is a uh, I don't think this is the start of a of a uh, of a long term turn. 
What about here in Hong Kong? Stocks start trading again this morning after the holiday yesterday with the Hang Seng Index at its lowest level in 11 years. On Monday, it dropped below 17,000 for the first time since October uh, 2011. In the third quarter, the Hang Seng lost over 21%, and year-to-date it's down 27%, making it one of the worst-performing indices in the world. Looks like we are going to get a rebound at the open this morning of around 500 points or so. But what do you make of uh, Hong Kong markets? Well, I would say, well, I would say for one, uh, the price of the, uh, of the Hong Kong dollar currency board uh, is, is asset price volatility. If your currency cannot adjust and the dollar is uh, very strong, mm. uh, you know, year to date, uh, up you know, 20% against some currencies, uh, then it's your asset prices which, uh, you know, which, which, which need to, would need to or, or tend to adjust. So I think that's one factor which, which needs, to be, uh, needs to be considered in this on basis of the underperformance of the Hong Kong market uh, you know, versus other majors. So did, would you think then that maybe thought is being uh, turned in government circles to whether or not it's appropriate to continue uh, with that peg? I'm not saying that the markets are somehow going to force it to break, but maybe there are questions being raised about, you know, should the Hong Kong dollar continue to be pegged to the US dollar in this way? Look, I think it's going to continue. It's, uh, it's worked through good and bad. Uh, I certainly don't think it's going to be uh, altered during, uh, during any, time of, any time of pressure. So it's, uh, uh, to our view, uh, you know, very firmly, it's, uh, it's with us for the foreseeable future. Mark, well, what are your thoughts on the Hong Kong markets? Well, I think if you, if you were to split the Hong Kong equity market, the Hang Seng, into three buckets, you've got the domestic Hong Kong businesses, you've got the Macau businesses, you've got the mainland tech-type stocks. There are reasons to get more optimistic at the margin about the Hong Kong domestic businesses. We are pivoting away from very, very tight COVID controls. There is clearly um, a direction amongst the, the Hong Kong government to try to shift towards a reopening. And that, that creates a sense of optimism. But obviously, it's been relatively slow but going slow, so isn't it? Then the second bucket, Macau. I see Macau is heavily dependent on our flow of, of mainland gamblers into Macau. And that's still very much under pressure. So maybe there we need to wait a little bit longer. And then on the, the mainland large tech companies, um, they are a function of uh, investors' perceived confidence in the regulatory outlook and also perceived confidence in the economic outlook as well. And there I think it's going to take more time. Um, so we are probably going to stay with very, very depressed valuations for the time being, but perhaps one or two of the pieces are starting to fall into place. How, how much do you think the woes of the Hong Kong market are, are global issues, such as you know, the Fed raising rates, supply chain problems around the world, and, and also then, but we have got domestic issues, haven't we? As you said, um, we are still having quite a lot of restrictions on travel in and out of Hong Kong, although, as you say, they are slowly being removed, but compared to the rest of the world, um, not fast enough. Um, we've also got problems on the mainland, haven't we, with, uh, with the property market, uh, we've got a slowing property market now here in Hong Kong. Um, it, it's not all international issues, is it? Some of our problems are, are homegrown. Well, as Patrick mentioned earlier, uh, Hong Kong is in a position where it's importing very, very tight monetary policy as a result of the, the Hong Kong dollar peg. And, and therefore, its fortunes are to a large extent dictated by the, the liquidity and the financial conditions that it has to implement in order to, to maintain that peg. Um, and then beyond that, of course, um, you know, the Hong Kong economy is very intertwined with the mainland economy. And we know it's been a difficult economic environment for, for the mainland China this year. Um, the COVID pandemic is still uh, pressurising uh, the ability 
ability of the economy to fully open up. I think consumer sentiment and business sentiment has been affected. And so it's, a lot is resting on the, uh, on, on the policy direction with regard to the pandemic, but also I think the long-term economic agenda that will be set by the, the National Congress later this month. And um, Patrick, what do you make of the currency? The US dollar has been on a real run this year, although it has come off the last five days um, or so. And the corollary of that, of course, is the Chinese yuan. I mean, its uh, offshore yuan hit a record low last week, around 7.25 per, per dollar. Um, do you see dollar strength as continuing? Yeah, I see the dollar strength uh, persisting for some time yet. Uh, I think we've probably seen the bulk of the move uh, you know, till now. Uh, I do think, as you mentioned earlier, the, uh, as Barry mentioned earlier, rather the, uh, the G20 meeting of uh, central bankers and finance ministers in Washington on the 12th and 13th, I think is very important. We've already seen intervention from Japan, intervention from Korea. Uh, you know, talk of, well, market intervention from, uh, from the UK. Does it do any good, all that intervention? Well, I think it gives it, it serves a uh, it serves to uh, to introduce some caution. Uh, I think mm. it doesn't it doesn't uh, work uh, if it's uh, if it's a one-off uh, event. But if you get a uh, a combination of uh, of central bankers around the world getting together and, and saying the same thing, uh, then I think we're getting to a point where the dollar strength. Uh, you know, it's coming up against some resistance and uh, some resistance from uh, quite a number of these G20 uh, central bankers. So I think we might hear more about that uh, come the uh, come the meeting at the end of uh, next week. Do, do you think, um, because so far all this central bank intervention has been done um, by central banks on their own, we haven't had any sort of coordination between them like we saw in the uh, the Plaza Accord in the 1980s, which was to, you know, to try and weaken the dollar, uh, strengthen the yen. Do you think we might see some sort of coordinated statements at least? I think we'll see a coordinated statement about uh, how currencies should reflect economic fundamentals, etc., etc. Mm. Uh, look, I think when we get dollar yen towards 150 or, uh, you know, dollar, dollar China towards uh, 730, uh, then I think we're sort of moving you know, slightly outside of those fundamentals, probably more for the yen. Uh, than for the uh, for the yuan, uh, when we get sterling towards one, uh, you know, one hundred three or the, you know the low level, then I think that they, the economic fundamentals uh, have been sort of pushed aside uh, somewhat. So I, I think that we're absolutely re reaching towards uh, the limit. Yeah. yeah, I think we're in nosebleed territory on the dollar strength. And what is really absent, as you suggest, Peter, is any kind of international coordination. Uh, this this administration has shown no interest in it. I think it reflects the fact that the Americans are feuding with both the Chinese and the Russians, and in the G20 context, both of those countries in it, that makes a problem. So you've got G7, but the G7 has been silent. Mark, final word to you. The other side of this, of course, is the weak Chinese yuan. Are the authorities concerned about that? Should they be concerned by it? Well, it comes back to dollar strength, um, unfortunately, and actually both uh, Janet Yellen, the US Treasury Secretary, and various members of the Fed have talked up the benefits of a strong dollar, uh, the, the idea that it can actually suppress inflation dynamics. But th that's somewhat far-fetched because a lot of the inflation dynamics of the US are domestically oriented rather than being imported. So I think that um, all currencies versus the dollar will, will struggle to gain traction whilst there is a declared policy objective of having a strong dollar from the US side. And as for 
the, the Chinese yuan, uh, yes, there has been a, a depreciation trend against the dollar, but if you put it in the context of comparing it to other currencies, it's been relatively resilient year to date. So I would be looking elsewhere for signs of, of, of rising volatility from an FX perspective. Well, thank you very much for that great conversation. That's Mark Franklin, Managing Director and Senior Portfolio Manager of Multi-Asset Solutions at Manulife Investment Management here in Hong Kong. You also heard Patrick Bennett, Macro Strategist at CIBC World Markets and our International Economics Correspondent, Barry Wood. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Asian Pacific markets are looking very strong at the open this morning. The SX200 in Australia is up one and a third percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan has risen 0.6 percent. The Cosby up about 0.9 percent and futures markets pointing to a rise of just over 500 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Thank you very much for listening. Do please join me again tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock for Money Talk. Coming up after the news, back chat with Jim Gould and Danny Gittings. The weather forecast, sunny periods and a few showers. Maximum temperature is going to be around 32 degrees and then a few showers and the temperatures will fall slightly in the next couple of days. Temperature right now is 29 degrees, 82% relative humidity. Times 8.31, here's Andrew Shrosky with the Half Hour News. Thank you, Peter. An astronomer says Hong Kong has some very smart students who might be good candidates for astronauts, but they'll also need to meet vigorous physical and psychological requirements. Applications open tomorrow for Hong Kongers to apply to China's space program for the first time ever. Sun Kwok is the director of the University of Hong Kong's Laboratory for Space Research, which he says was created purely to take advantage of China's space program. He told RTHK he hoped his laboratory could put forward candidates for the recruitment exercise. But I think there are some unique aspects of candidates from Hong Kong. For example, in Hong Kong U, we have very extensive international collaborations and connections, so Hong Kong students may have a bit of international perspective. They also are more trained into having an open mind in problem solving and not being restricted by standard procedures and so on. So there are some differences as well. The United States has announced another $600 million in military aid for Ukraine as the country consolidates its gains against Russia. The latest hardware includes four more of the advanced HIMARS multiple rocket systems. The U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary for Defense for Russia, Ukraine and Eurasia, Laura Cooper, said military aid from the U.S. and its allies was helping Ukrainian successes on the battlefield. This package will provide the Ukrainian armed forces with additional capabilities and munitions that it needs to maintain momentum in the east and in the south, including additional artillery and precision fires. Ukraine has demonstrated the ability to use these capabilities to degrade Russian logistics and command and control, creating opportunities for Ukraine to maneuver and to advance. This has created a change in battlefield dynamics. The family of a teenage protester who died last month after joining protests in Tehran says Iranian security forces stole her daughter's body and buried her some distance away. 16-year-old Nika Shakarami's aunt told the BBC that in her last message, Nika said she was being chased by police. She left the house on 20th of September and she was missing for 10 days. After 10 days of search in every single prison, the authorities showed us a picture of her body in the streets, claiming that she died falling from a height. The way that picture was taken seemed like that photo was staged. 
Officials in northern India say 21 trainee mountaineers are missing after getting caught in an avalanche in the Himalayas. They were part of a group of climbers from a well-known state-run mountaineering school in Uttarakhand. A power blackout has hit large parts of Bangladesh following, following a failure in the national grid. The authorities said more than 80% of the country has been affected by the sudden outage. More than 100 million people were, were reported to be without electricity. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning. Welcome to Back Chat. I'm Danny Gittings and with me this morning is Jim Gould. Good morning. Good morning. In our main topic today, we're going to be looking at the first ever opportunity for Hong Kong people to become astronauts as China widens the selection process for its fourth batch of astronauts to include applicants from Hong Kong.